Hey, a quick reminder. We would love to hear from you about your best summer travel stories. Give us a call and tell us about the places you went, the people that you have met, the things that you learned while traveling. Uh, You can record a voice memo and email it to us at hello at atlasobscura.com or call us and leave a message at 315-992-7902. Looking forward to hearing from you. Back in 2015, I was on assignment for Archaeology magazine. After several international flights and a few smaller flights that took me from island to island, I found myself on a small boat off the coast of East Africa. We moved along the edge of a mangrove forest toward a small opening in the mesh of roots and branches. We found a small wooden dock at the base of a dark cliff and carved into the rock were stairs that led to the top. Up there, we found ourselves in the stone ruins of a spectacular greeting court. There were stone blocks carved with decorations, the remains of dozens of rooms, and an elaborate octagonal bath perched on the edge of the cliff. It was clear right away that in its day, a day long past, this was an opulent place. The view was incredible, down a wooded slope to the grasslands and shoreline and blue waters below. And out there, a mile or two away, there was once a wealthy city. Back in the 14th century, it was bustling with trade from Europe, India, Southeast Asia, and China. History is rich with stories of the major trade cities of the Mediterranean and the Middle East, but it has less to say about places like this a center of trade in Africa. So how was the history of this place almost lost? And how was it recovered? I'm Samir Patel, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, wondrous places. Today, we're going to Kilwakisawani on the Swahili coast. With the help of a few archaeologists, we're going to dig through more than a thousand years of dirt, history, colonialism, and myth. After this. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies West. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today. (laughs) 
The court with the amazing view and the octagonal bath is part of Husuni Kubwa, Swahili for Great Palace. It was built in the 14th century by a guy named Sultan Al-Hassan ibn Suleiman, who was once one of the richest leaders of Kilwa Kisawani. I got to see the palace, but also the city of Kilwa below, home to some of the most spectacular ruins along the East African coast. But the real treasure here is underground. It is an extraordinary legacy which has been written out of history. This is Mark Horton, one of the archaeologists with me on that trip. I'm the professor of archaeology and cultural heritage at the Royal Agricultural University. But for many years, I was at Bristol University, where I have been researching the archaeology of the East African coast since 1980. A place like Kilwa is more than the ruins we see on the surface. It's hundreds of years of history stacked on top of each other in what archaeologists call stratigraphy. They go down layer by layer, traveling back in time. In this case, 1,200 years. The site is a magnificent layer cake. And the, the earliest dates we have from Kilwa is around 850, when the place seems to be quite a small fishing village. Um, but as the succeeding inhabitants get richer, more powerful, so the site expands from this relatively small fishing community on a literally on a sand spit to colonizing the whole end of Kilwakisiwani Island. And so what we see is almost the top of the iceberg, the top of the fruitcake, if you like. Kilwa was one of hundreds of towns across some 2,000 miles of African coast, or what we now call the Swahili coast culture. For the most part, the towns and cities were all independent, like city-states. But they are united by the fact that these communities spoke a language that today we know as Swahili that is used by and understood by all the communities in these cities. They also gradually uh, adopted Islam. That's Chap Kusimba, an archaeologist at the University of South Florida, who studied a handful of these ancient Swahili sites in his native Kenya. I have been uh, engaged with active research for the last 35 years. These towns were perfectly situated along the trade winds of the Indian Ocean. Between the 10th and 15th centuries, they became the gateway for the riches of the African interior. Gold and ivory and timber and probably enslaved people. A famous 14th century traveler, Ibn Battuta, visited Kilwa and called it one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and he'd seen a lot of them. Portuguese explorers wrote about how cosmopolitan and successful these places were. John Milton even mentions Kilwa in Paradise Lost as among the great kingdoms of Earth. Here's Chap again. They talk about cities that were complex, that they were diverse, uh, that had uh, people from many regions of the world. But at the same time, uh, the question of the identity of uh, these peoples. In other words, if we dig down into the layer cake of history, who were the people that founded these amazing cities? This was a question for archaeologists to help answer. And one of the first to take a crack was a British scholar, a bloke named Neville Chittick. Chittick was a self-taught archaeologist, and in 1950, he came to Kilwa Kisawani. 
His house, a modern Western-style one, is still there next to the city, near some old rusting rail carts. He and hundreds of workmen used them to expose and map the ruins we see out there today. Chittick unearthed the Kilwa of the 14th century. He found imported pottery from China and Italy. He uncovered mosques. And it all seemed to confirm what the Portuguese had once written, that Kilwa had been founded by colonialists, maybe from Persia or the Middle East. They brought Islam, trade, civilization, even to Africa. Here's Mark Horton again. So there's an enormous numbers of these sites, um, and they were all attributed to these Arab colonists that brought civilization to Africa, the same way that the, the British colonists saw themselves as bringing civilization to Africa. Um, and his excavation was very much devoted to, to proving this particular hypothesis. It's not much of a surprise that Chittick came to this conclusion. He was a colonial man in a colonial era, he saw evidence that fit his preconceived notions. It's how myth gets calcified into history. So this was the received wisdom, really, through the 60s and 70s. But by the late 70s, there were, as it were, people who were challenging this, this narrative. Remember earlier when Mark called the site a layer cake? Chittick spent eight years on the frosting. Another generation of archaeologists, including Mark and Chap, were digging further. Down at the bottom and all the way through the layer cake, they found traditional African pottery. Under the stone mosques, and every stone town had several, they found something very interesting. Underneath these magnificent stone mosques with their domes, we find that there were timber mosques going back to maybe 750, 780 A.D., these old wooden mosques in the bottom layer were built in a traditional African style. Neville Chittick's theory of Persian colonial empires bringing culture to the Swahili coast was totally upended. The stuff in the ground told a different story. The African DNA of these sites was apparent. It was continuous. It was unmistakable. The idea of the Arab myth was increasingly being rejected by both linguists, historians, and archaeologists, and saying, well, this is actually an African civilization um, of extraordinary achievement and splendor. I think that in our time, no one really questions the African identity of the Swahili people. There's no archaeologist alive today who will argue that the Swahili are not African. Another big question is why the Swahili people converted to Islam so early in their history. The timber mosques might be built in an African style, but they are still mosques. For Chap Kusimba, one explanation is economic. East Africa benefits from sort of Islamic-friendly policies that make it possible to, to conduct commerce in foreign lands. Mark Horton tends to agree. The overseas merchants that came would have been sponsored by their Swahili merchant host. And they would have been literally taken in by their Swahili sponsors and looked after. They would have been fed, accommodated. But in return, these merchants could only trade with their hosts and on the terms that their hosts demanded. So, yeah, it was essential for these, as it were, trading houses to be Muslim 
So, converting to Islam was a way to get involved in the trade of things like ivory and gold. But Mark Horton also mentioned another theory. Indian Ocean trade did involve enslaved people, and the Swahili were a part of this trade. They could escape that fate themselves, though, because they were Muslim. You cannot enslave a fellow Muslim. And so there was a massive incentive for these coastal dwellers, these Swahili, to become Muslims because they, it was like an insurance policy to stop them being shipped off um, to the Middle East. By the 16th century, the winds of global trade had shifted. The Portuguese began meddling in Swahili trade. There was maybe a cool period in global climate and the plague might have been an issue. And, of course, we all know that colonialist powers and the era of widespread slavery descended on Africa. The wealth and independence begins to disappear under a new layer of history. Samir, we do not see African agency. We do not see continuation in this dynamism. We do not see Africans building new structures. We see uh, abandonment and destruction and devolution, a product of, in fact, the slaving mechanism. 400 years. Not everything disappeared. Millions of people still speak Kiswahili and practice Islam on the East African coast. Language, religion, literature, scholarship, there's a significant legacy from the stone towns alive today. So how are the true origins of the culture almost lost? Racism, uh, colonial racism, colonialism and racism, and a century of historians who were very anxious to demonstrate that, that Africa was a primitive continent in order to justify colonial interventions and essentially profiteering in Africa. But the silencing of and the erasure of, in fact, African participation in these global exchanges is something that is not actually surprising in the sense that European historians have have this uh, hidden bias. Uh, There does seem to be this guilt Uh, that by just shying away from talking about Africa, the 400 years of enslavement of Africa will go away. And for that narrative to work, um, they had to write out African civilizations out of history. Uh, We can see where the colonial mindset did not allow space for African ingenuity and genius. But now that space is being reclaimed. But it's a story that still needs telling because colonial myths and mindsets are persistent. Those who know it know that these are African civilizations. It's a cause for for pride for African people who are seen, for the most part, as a people without history, especially for Africans that encounter in the diaspora African-Americans, when they learn about the Swahili, they often become extremely proud of the achievements of these, their ancestors. Kilwa Kisawani is proof that history has power, and it refuses to stay buried. 
Special thanks to Chap Kusimba and Mark Horton for taking the time to talk. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Witness Docs. Our production team includes Doug Baldinger, Dylan Thuris, Camille Stanley, Sarah Wyman, Tracy Samuelson, Manolo Morales, Camille Mojica, Chilenya Onike, Maddie Weinberg, John Delore, Peter Clowney. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Chris Naka and mixed by Luce Fleming. Our theme and end credit music is by Sam Tyndall. I'm Samir Patel, reminding you that wonder is everywhere. Thanks for listening. Witness Docs from Stitcher. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.